You're listening to Lane Radio, the hottest show this side of Diesel. I've written an intro, which was, <laughs> depending on Chris being here, but he's not here, so I've had to quickly rejig it, but that's fine. Well, I wrote an intro as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, we'll have, an in- we'll have an intro off. If you yeah. both deliver your intros, then I'll decide which one's the best. How about okay. that? Do you want to go first, John? <laughs> oh, uh, well, I, I, it sounds like I'm bigging it up now, but... Gladiators, <laughs> get your intros ready! <laughs> okay, um, right, I was, I was going to keep mine simple. So, welcome to Lee Radio, episode 17. Joining me in the poorly maintained Sidewinder tonight is the man who puts the rev in Lee Revolution, Mr. Alan Stroud. That's very good, I like that. Yeah. Alas, Fozza is on holiday and Chris Jarvis is unavailable, so luckily we have a guest co-host. She's the lady who puts the owl in slough it's kate russell that's good that's 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 smoking hot that one yeah I, I, I like that yeah you you might want to won this i'm i'm kind of feeling bad here that's um, okay well do you, is, uh, that, is, is that the Fos- whole thing well and then Fos- i was gonna just... learn all about the owl in slough as well by the way he's very lucky that he's not here tonight what, anyway, what, sorry, the, what the rubbish dump the rubbish dump thing the owl in slough as oh, in okay. my <laughs> rocket launcher up his jack seat <laughs> I, so he comes I'm, anywhere near me in his orange sidewinder <laughs> i'm 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 delighted that foz got the blame it's fantastic considering it <laughs> considering it's alan's idea in the first place well do you know what he was the one who took it to the emptying all of the galaxies yeah uh, that's fine that's that's fine i'm i'm quite i'm quite happy that you think that that's absolutely you're both in trouble then <laughs> okay good <laughs> no no i'm i'm happy to for foz to take the blame sounds fine to me yeah kate it didn't make the edit but i was protesting i i thought it was a terrible <laughs> idea <laughs> uh, yeah yeah laugh it up yeah yeah of course you were Okay, right, well, sh- should I try and better that then? Well, that was my simple intro, and then I was just going to ask what you guys have been up to. But go on then, Alan, you go for okay, it. Okay, all right, as I've written the damn thing, we might as well have it, but I think yours is better. Okay, so I've riffed off Foz's a little bit. Greetings and welcome to episode 17 of Lave Radio, the podcast that brings you all the latest development news on the forthcoming computer game Elite Dangerous. Your usual host, Chris Fozza Forrester, is absent this evening, so it's down to me to do the introductions in the best traditions of Mashup, which I know Fozza loves. Tonight... In the Sidewinder cockpit, we have the Anakin Skywalker of the Elite Universe, John Stabler. Hello. And the Princess Leah of the Elite Universe, Kate Russell. <laughs> Hello. Do I have to put bread buns on my head? Oh, I was thinking you were wearing your headphones, so it you know, kind of counts, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, cool. And cool. unfortunately, called away for an emergency, we would have had the Jar Jar Binks of the Elite Universe, Chris Jarvis. Unfortunately for my joke, he's been called away. But we do have another deputy fresh from his excellent interview on Lave Radio last week representing the youth of today. We have Tom. Hello, Tom. I'm Tom, and I don't play first-person shooters. I think we're going to be playing really fast and loose with this episode because I've just realised we both introduced it as episode 17 when it's episode 16. Do you know why I changed it? Because I did. <laughs> Kate, what have you been up to? 
Um, okay, so this week, um, I've actually been going to a lot of weddings. It's all about weddings in my life this this week, which is bizarre. My cousin got married last weekend and my uh, niece is getting married tomorrow. So it's all been about um, finding the right dress, wrapping the present, buying the card and uh, all that kind of shenanigans. So yeah, not, 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 not a terribly exciting week. I've also, I'm planning a trip to Bletchley Park this weekend to go and um, have a look around there because I've never actually been there, which is kind of embarrassing so I've been planning what I'm going to do for the day up there on Saturday after the wedding and uh, also planning my revenge on um, Fozza and Alan um, for their shenanigans um, about planning to dump rubbish in Slough. See we thought you'd like it. Really? Did you really? Is that what you thought? And what 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 would what would give you that idea? I, I you know I, I was kind of thinking it was part of the you know the shtick of of Okay. I thought you would have, you know, enjoyed the the extra company that it's going to bring. You know, being the rubbish mecca of the elite universe. <laughs> well, you know, there's also there's a trade option there, isn't there? I mean, you know, if people are bringing masses of goods, even if it's the worst possible goods ever, they're bringing masses of goods into a system. I mean, that's quite a, you know. They are not going to do- <laughs> actually one of the um, one of the poems that I'm starting my book off with. Hopefully, um, is the slough of discontent, um, which is kind of it's the the human emotion rubbish tip of the world um, where all your fears and when you get over your sort of um, or sorry when you get over your fears and you're sort of um, uh, you try striving for a goal it's uh, it's where all of those sort of negative emotions go and sort of hang around to haunt you so yeah well I was kind of thinking that you know I mean if you if you don't like it then we could effectively start a very interesting piece of pvp uh, in the game where we will have two distinct groups, one of whom will be dumping rubbish in slough and the other group will be getting rid of the rubbish in slough or hunting down the people who are dumping rubbish in slough. I think I, that, that can make a... I don't want slough's airspace to be full of rubbish-picking Asbo bloody penance people. No, thank you. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we tried, didn't we, John? Well, we haven't had any better suggestions. This is the problem. So we'll put it out there again. If anybody can think of somewhere better, fine. Alan, what have you been up to? Today, I have mostly been cutting stuff for this and for uh, sorting stuff out for new teaching, which starts in a couple of weeks. Book is going well. Done a lot of writing. Probably, I don't know, I'm not far from the ending now. I said on, on my Kickstarter about three chapters, and uh, it's probably still about three chapters, but it's just positioning everything into the right place to, to finish it all off, so that's that's quite cool. That's about it, really. Yeah, a couple of work meetings. Kate, are you about three chapters off on yours? <laughs> I don't I'm just sitting here thinking, why? Well, do you know what? So who was it who tweeted the other day as well, saying, how's everyone doing with their books? And I said that I was about two-thirds of the way through mine. Um, you said three quarters, actually. To us, two thirds, three quarters, <laughs> semantics. Um, we're we talking word count or chapter count. Um, you see, I, I, I don't go in for word counts at all. I think I think that's just revealing your weakness. <laughs> well, no, actually, I don't. In, in terms of chapters, I'm three quarters of the way through. But in terms of word count, I'm only about two thirds of the way through my target. But again. I'm not going to sort of have a cutoff point on the target. But no, I'm having a real, I'm actually, I'll be honest, I'm struggling at the moment with progressing through mm. the chapters and through the story, mainly because 
frontier developments keep releasing all this really cool stuff about <laughs> ships and about the uh, modular space stations and about the zero gravity or low gravity environments and and how various different trade mechanisms might work and you know about the slave trading and the different aspects and i keep reading the forums and then going oh, oh that would go really great in chapter three or oh that that's a detail that i need to change for chapter two so i find myself being drawn into going back over old ground so in terms of progression i'm feeling really happy with the way it's molding as a story but what i need to do is i need to stop getting my focus pulled back over the previous chapters when when they release more cool information about you know what, what is actually going to be in the game they need to stop it basically they just need to stop it right now <laughs> uh, slow down and uh, uh, stop the fairground ride while uh, yeah, the rest of us pedal to catch up. Yeah, exactly. No, I really do feel like that. That I am desperately pedaling to, and there's there's things that really fundamentally change the story too. For example, there's a whole load of activity in my book that goes on inside the the ships. Um, you know, sort of when you come into a dock at a space station and the sort of that transition from inside the cockpit to inside the space station loading bays and and the whole business you know a couple of um, newsletters ago they did that whole um stuff about the personal life support systems you know and, and not having these big sort of like you know fishbowl masks that sort of pressurize and fill with air but then having this sort of you know perhaps this organic shell that comes sort of somehow out of your face and just sort of like surround your face and that's something which is just a great thing to use but kind of changes quite a lot of the scenes if I yeah. decide to go that route so it's really it's really frustrating because there's lots of really interesting stuff that I want to be able to use in my book but I need to not be distracted and actually just get to the end of the race before I start going back and then all this stuff with the cylinder cylindrical uh, landing pads and mm. and all that information can't come out today and it's really they're fundamental descriptive sort of things that that really you need to get right i, I feel sorry for john actually today because this is going to turn into a group therapy session for us writers isn't it <laughs> it's like that every week don't worry about it <laughs> okay <Yeah. laughs> There's always some kind of therapy going on. But it's, it's good that you mentioned the ships because that's the first topic on, uh, yeah, look at that segue. Such <laughs> professional. You almost sort of pulled us back from the brink there, back into the ring, didn't you? Yeah. So yeah. Just to, you know. Well, again, it's me doing the editing and there's nothing yeah. I hate more than just putting you guys on the cutting room floor. Yeah, no, so the stations. And um, you, you were obviously a big fan of this, Kate. Uh, there's so many aspects to it. I mean, first of all, this procedural algorithms to sort of like have these sort of space stations constructed out of all of the, the, the range of modular assets. It sounds a bit like a sort of, you know, a, a Meccano set in the sky, which could be really interesting. And then you've got the, you know, the agricultural model and how, you know, that's going to affect perhaps the trade and perhaps if they're close enough to a, a star, uh, you know, to sort of have naturally grown produce then that's going to perhaps influence the market in that particular system and planet so it's just fascinating how varied this playing field is going to be on so many aspects i'm just really really interested to see how it actually physically comes together and you know there's a risk 
you know there was that whole thing a couple of years ago with um uh, itunes playlists and when you put them on random shuffle people were saying well they're not random it's too you know so they actually had to put a pattern into it to make it feel more random because truly random um you know you get quite a lot of repetition and you get quite a lot of patterning in a truly you know computer decided random construct so i wonder i wonder if they're how they're going to manage that whether there's going to be too much david Brober very early on talked through his sort of it's not the fibonacci sequence but there is this thing in in how they you know they have this controlling number that effectively makes sure that much as it's randomized it always generates in a particular way i coined the phrase when we had some of the early newsletters of ship porn and i kind of felt a little bit like that with space stations here it's gorgeous and and i think that Looking at it and looking at the ideas and everything else behind it, yeah, I kind of loved it. You know, I mean, you can see 2001, can't you? You can see Elite. You yeah, can see, yeah. you know, Blade Runner sorts. even. Yeah, in the, yeah. The, the sort of like the lower grade uh, docking bay. The Fibonacci sequence, whatever the solution that is they're having, I thought that was about the same. Um, so basically, when you when you go to it, the same place twice. Mm. You will get, the, even though it's been procedurally generated, you will get the same experience because it starts from the same number, right? Yeah, yeah. But that won't control the variation that you experience across the galaxy. Yeah, absolutely. No, I do. I think I think you're kind of, are you kind of touching on the idea of there being like thematic sort of changes? So, for example, if there is a, a particular faction or a particular style related to a particular quadrant of the galaxy, is that what you're kind yeah, of touching? Yeah, exactly. Because people be follow random. a fashion and... Yeah. You know, and, and and things knit together. I see what you're saying. Because there's a shortage of this in sector A. You know, perhaps sector B will, you know, develop in tune with that. And and I wonder if there isn't a, a risk that using the procedural algorithms to pick and choose modules if there's no control over that then then it could be a bit random it could be a bit bizarre you know yeah. flying across a, a solar system yeah i see what you mean michael has said that um, that there are ways in which they can insert code but of course at the same time if you're inserting code across a hundred different star systems or a thousand yeah. different star systems that's not going to work so it actually has to hang together doesn't it so i don't know i assume that you know part of their their way of design will will do that with the random numbers obviously they just feed into whatever model they design and by model, I don't mean 3D model. I mean, whatever the code is that, that generates, you know, all these different features like the ships. It's perfectly reasonable that within the core systems, you know, between the Alliance, between the Federation and the Empire, those models could support certain features so that you will get this kind of look an aesthetic on a factional basis to kind of give you what you were talking about, Kate, you know, that if you go to sector A, you're going to see certain features on, on space stations and things like that. But what interests me is the fact that they're kind of brave in a way because they're feeding random numbers in uh, into this model. And although they, they're going to tweak it and tweak it, they're not going to be able to see every possible permutation. So eventually it might be possible that you'll see something absolutely crazy in the universe somewhere that they hadn't even thought of and it just got created and there's nothing they can do about it because that's it it's there and people have seen it and uh, that might be quite funny one thing that did occur to me was that while i was writing i was looking at, at particular stylistic themes across uh, buildings and costume clothing and and sort of you know stuff to do with the way in which the world uh, was constructed particularly because you know, as writers we've had some rough documents in terms of particular aesthetics in some of the larger faction areas but when you're writing for one planet or for one system it kind of you, you want to give, give it something very specific to what you're doing yeah i i kind of 
I guess if it's in a random system, then hoping that those things are going to be in the places that you're looking at is, is a bit tricky, particularly if it's not one of the systems that's like your main system, because obviously the writers are going to have some influence over their main systems. But if I have a quick petrol stop at Myola or Semius or something like that, the aesthetic has to kind of fit the way in which my book works, I guess. The thing that we do know very much from the last four or five weeks is that we've got the USP down now, haven't we, really? You know, you can see what this game is in mm. terms of it being different to any other game. That The exploration is just going to be utterly, utterly huge for this game. I guess, John, from what you're saying, you know, with the idea of the randoming, part of the, part of the USP of the game is that they won't know what's out there and they shouldn't know what's out there because so, otherwise they wouldn't be playing along with us, would they? I wonder if there, there's a risk that the game is going to be full of explorers and they'll actually you go to Lave and there'll just be no one around. It'll be a ghost town. Everyone will be off exploring the reach, far reaches of the galaxy. It's all right. I'll be there. Be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't write a whole book and not kind of sadly sit in my own space station like a hobo, could I? You know, that would be... <laughs> well, that's what uh, I'm going to be doing, firing my blooming pulse lasers at any orange sidewinders that come within... Well, I definitely like the idea that uh, the space stations are going to be built, you know, over time so that you'll actually see them getting, crea- you know, created from a scaffold because that is what is going to give you this this sense that the universe is evolving because, you know, if they just pop into existence, it kind of breaks that. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that. Love the idea of the, uh, although it's not something that we're really going to experience in game, I think, but in terms of for the fiction, the the whole aspect of gravity and the low gravity areas for you know offloading your your cargo for example in one third gravity and and perhaps there being environments where you can strap on wings and go flying um (laughs) just i think that's a great idea in terms of the fiction and in some respects the, the the bit in the newsletter where he's talking about the low and high gravity environments and planets and how how people would evolve from that it's kind of straight out of out of my book mostly harmless because that's the whole premise of slough is that it's heavy and the people have bred themselves to deal with the atmosphere and be able to mine mine the uh, the, the the planet yeah i was going to say Anne mccaffrey's really good with that in that i don't know if you read much of stuff like dinosaur planet dinosaur planet 2 she has this concept of of heavy worlders and heavy worlders are these people who've essentially who are humans who've adapted to high gravity environments um, right. and yeah really really interesting description really interesting different culture you know they, they, they obviously they've they've evolved in a way that has a slightly different way in which they, they look at the world anyway and of course there's also there's it's a, an opportunity for for prejudice within the within the fiction too because the you know they're seen because right. of the way in which they look they're seen as being thick or dumb, and they're actually not. Mine are called spinners. The, one, the ones who live down on the planet are called spinners because the, the, when the settlers first arrived at Slough and they needed people to go down into the planet and, and be able to withstand heavy labouring jobs in the one and a half times gravity of, of what they were used to on Earth, they, they actually became revered and children were um, from birth were selected for their strong physiques and then trained on centrifugal force. Um, mm. spinning up to four and six times um, gravity over prolonged periods as they grew to to make their bones and their cell structure able to to cope. So you've got that they're actually, although they look quite Neanderthal, and they also self-selected into 
you know, sort of genetic groups because because it was a family would get a lot of money for their children becoming a, a miner, becoming a spinner. So um, they self-selected to create offspring um, that were hardier and more able to withstand from the early days. So you've got this very definite sort of physical difference between the people who live in orbit and the people who live down on the planet's surface. But actually, the people who live on the planet's surface are the ones who are revered because they're the ones who actually can get the money out of the planet. So. Yeah, sure. I've, I've actually got a little bit of a, that in reverse in that, you know, it's the guys on the space station who are revered and it's the people on the planet who are the, uh, the drudges. I've got colonials and interstellars and the colonials were the old colonists of the planet. The interstellars are basically, a, they were all the people that fled to Lave after Galcop fell. And what they did is they established this society that effectively oppressed anyone who was on the planet, aimed to making them believe that Galcop still existed and that they were still the centre of the universe. And so they Uh created a a North Korean society. So Lave as as a station is is fantastic. And, you know, people have gone there all the time, but all the planetary communication and everything for more than 100 years has been locked down. So it's it's a real old school revolution then, if anything. It's not just, you know, a a revolution as in upheaval, but it's probably going to be quite bloody then, I, I take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of the plan. I mean, the, I, I, I've kind of gone for, this is without giving too much away. Um, I think you've already given too much away. Yeah, yeah, you, probably, <laughs> you put two writers in the same room and we're so advanced on our plot, we're sitting here full of beans wanting to actually talk about it. I mean, you yeah. know, just for months. The thing I've got is that basically the revolution's a perfect storm. Um, Lave is a huge surveillance society. It's basically, it's a cross between Orwell and, and Kim Jong-il. And then suddenly something happens that sort of starts to create some consciousness and then something happens in space and uh, nobody really intended what happened yeah <laughs> it's ends, annoying, that's, isn't it? that's what that's what they end up with and you know they all kind of little in little ways wanted it but they didn't all want it the what happened was there anything else i mean the only other thing i noticed I mean, well there's a lot in there you know all this talk of gravity and these cylinders Obviously, I, I think in, in Chris's absence, we should probably cover the fact that, you know, he was quite vociferous about the, the issues relating to docking, the way in which they've currently got it. They have kind of come back and, and you know, made some suggestions about how it works. But I think he was he was kind of campaigning for a slightly more efficient solution, wasn't he? You understood the physics of it. I didn't really. Yeah, no, I, I, but him and I were both on the same page. And we thought that, that there was going to be a more simple solution that because um, it might be the future, but energy is not infinite. So they would, you know, look at economy as a major factor. So I, I think that they should take a look at that. We'll see. We'll see what they say. Yeah, I think the the doing a barrel roll thing actually, when it comes down to issues of pollutant <laughs> within a within an interior station with a finite oxygen atmosphere, you've got some guy basically firing his retros all through. You know, that's quite a smog. Well, and not just that, but in terms of it, it would be a very uncomfortable landing as well. And if you're thinking of things like passenger liners, then I don't think that it's really an option, to be honest. If if you're trying to look at it from a realistic point of view, do, do you have a take? on this game i think that um well my my the opening of my book starts with uh memories uh, uh, exact reconstruction of how i used to remember trying to land in the original elite game when you before you've got your docking computer and trying to get that sort of like you know perfect synchronization with the slot that you're coming towards and then after 
after you enter through the slot, kind of like the the, the um, space station's automatic braking system, kind of taking over at that point. And that's kind of what I remember, but maybe I've misremembered it. I was kind of expecting it to be something along those lines. Effectively, get plucked out of the you know of the like like a post box. Exactly. As soon as you pass out. into yeah. that area, suddenly, because also don't forget, once you get within the, the, the turn of the space station, then gravity is going to take a hold of you as well, to some mm. extent. So I think to some extent, they have to let the space station take control of, of, of things. And it stops you ramming straight into the, the uh, control deck as well. I think the, the problem is one of scale as well. In the old space stations, they were, they were quite small in relation to the ship. So when you went through that post box and got in, you know, it was always a snug fit. And so, um, and especially in Frontier, if you remember, remember docking, you know, you'd go in and it, you'd spin you round and the, you'd actually basically see a kind of mechanism which made you assume that it was going to then take you away. But if you think about it in real scale, and, you know, they're talking of the Coriolis stations being a kilometre across, it would, be, it would seem very wasteful to have a mechanism that would operate across a 500 metre, you know, whatever, to get you into the, to the station or whatever maybe. Well, as well as that, I mean, I, I did, I did for one of my scenes, I did a little bit of calculation and, uh, and looking up um, because I didn't really know the physics and something i read quoted the idea that to get earth gravity you needed a station that had eight kilometers in circumference two kilometers in radius and it would need to spin at about 300 kilometers an hour or, <laughs> wow. okay. or, or something or 300 miles an hour about which is about 480 kilometers an hour and that would give you enough centripetal force to have one gravity on the deck. Uh, when um, me and Chris Jarvis were talking about this, I went and did a little bit of research about what they referred to as rotating wheel space stations. And they actually had some mathematics. Um, and they said that you could achieve this 1G on a space station that operated at two revolutions per minute. Because if you go more than two revolutions per minute, you get this Coriolis effect, which makes you feel sick. Um, because you can actually feel the spin. So you don't want to be spinning too fast. That requires size, doesn't it? Yeah. So if you're going for two revolutions a minute. But they, they, were, they were talking about something like 450 foot, which I think is a little bit smaller than what you, you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The calculation I had was <laughs> was huge. So I, I kind of, you know, I went with that because that was what I found. But, um, you know, if I, I'm, I'm happy to accept any other maths. They actually show all the workings on the Wikipedia article, so I definitely recommend people check it out. Because it means that if you go to one kilometre, you can actually have a quite slow rotating station and still manage you know, these kind of uh, G-forces. And meanwhile, I refuse point blank to go back and write the entire opening of my book again until this is sorted out. So <laughs> I've, I've got I've got like a docking arm that effectively plucks you out of a slot in a shelf and then just deposits you towards the launch base. I'm probably going to. I was with thinking that tractor beam. There, there's tractor beams and you know. Oh and, and no, they the won't like Michael Brooks. <laughs> won't like that. I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, I've just been kind of woolly about it. Really, I mean, she enters the space station and and the automatic docking system takes control at the moment. But, you know, I think you could get a lot of description out of, you know, this other angle they're coming from, that, you know, the space stations aren't necessarily just going to be these structures floating around an orbit, but also you've got the 
the mining stations and the pirate stations, which are going to be, you know, like hollowed out asteroids and things like that. How? What are your thoughts on that, Alan? I mean, you. I've got. I've already got a mining base, which at the moment the main descriptive element there is that it's the atmosphere is very dusty, and and it's it's not a spinning station. It's a, it's a static station, which makes it very problematic for for people because of course you know you're basically walking around in very cloying air so i've I've kind of played around with that i've not really gone into the idea of of rotation there I, i've got a little bit of rotation on one of the ships but i've not gone into rotation on on the mining station yet my pirates live on an asteroid base but uh and that's got a, deliberately got a low low gravity environment although there is some gravity through sort of centrifugal force but limited ga- gravity for obvious comedy reasons. I got I got tons of stuff in zero. You know, I've got fighting in zero. I mean, Drew yeah, was saying bar fights are spectacular in yeah, in gravity environment. I, I mean, Drew was saying the other day he'd kind of avoided it, and I thought actually no, I really like it because once you get a blood spill in zero gravity, it, you know, I've got this this sort of description of spider-like tendrils of blood going all over the place because of course it's just you know it's got nowhere to just exists in this extra space doesn't it so it can i think quentin tarantino's been missing a trick all these years to be honest almost more horrific is the uh, concept that i'm working on for one of my so the the stations around uh, slough have been turned into well one of them's been turned into a, a health spa and one of the rather uh, unpleasant aspects of the the um, sort of like the the fat um, rich people will go and have a hot float uh, which is basically a steam bath in zero gravity. <laughs> <laughs> rather sweaty and unpleasant for Can everyone. imagine because everything obviously hangs in the air. Fantastic. Yes, everything yeah, yeah. hangs in the air. <laughs> Please select a beverage. Um. Unrecognized instruction. Please select a beverage. Diesel, pop, or reort, raid, or raid. I think, I think both. Unrecognized instruction. Would you like diesel, pop? To a degree, yes and no. Unrecognized instruction. Would you like reort, raid, or raid? I think, um... Unrecognized instruction. Please hold and wait for assistance. Right, moving on to the DDF. So, ship management. Is this your thing, Kate? Are you interested in how are you going to manage your ship? Not especially. (laughs) To keep it brief, I mean, the ship management kind of got a lot of people talking because they, in a way, they revealed a lot about combat. Uh, and how combat is going to happen within the game because they were giving away hints of you know what people can do to to manage their ship um, and mitigate damage and in a way they kind of revealed how long they're expecting uh, space battles to last uh, or dogfights and they were looking I think they were looking in terms of you know two to three minutes but also that they want people to have options to make sure that uh, escape is is going to be a viable tactic. Uh, even, you know, halfway into the fight. Um, And the big thing was that they didn't want people to feel that um, once they started losing, that they were doomed, that that, um, they were at a disadvantage, and so they wouldn't be able to claw it back. Um, They wanted to make sure that ships were effective, even after they'd been damaged. So, I mean, what were your thoughts on that on a kind of conceptual level, guys? 
Well, um, first of all, I think probably the, the best thing to do would be to turn to the person who's got the most game-playing experience of us at this stage in time, and uh, particularly with combat, and say, Tom, um, what do you think about it? I'm Tom, and I don't play first-person shooters. Yeah, it, I mean, you know, I like the idea, I, I played a lot of X-Wing, and I like the idea with X-Wing that you have this distribution system where you can basically send power to different places, which I think is quite clever. And they appear to have tried to embrace that, you know, for at least part of the way in which you, you engage in combat, which I think is a, a nice idea. And then as it goes through, you know, the, that sort of management of that stuff and also managing your cooling and, you know, and that in relation to to stealth and other bits and pieces. It does sound like it could be very interesting. It could be very interesting for somebody who can kind of get the knack of it, if you see what I mean, almost a hard skill. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm in favor of hard skill based games because I like it when there isn't so much where essentially you've, you've gone in a game and you earn a certain amount of points or whatever else and they give you a power up that um, makes you better than somebody else. I'd rather that it was it was down to a knack and And by by get the knack of i read you actually meaning can be asked to figure it out yeah Um, yeah yeah exactly (laughs) and similarly i mean if you if you you know times this exponentially by the amount of ships of course most of us what we're going to do is we're going to get into one ship that we'd wanted to get into and then we will get as good as we feel we can get with it and then use it the way we want to use it and actually if you've got options then that you know encourages lots of different ways in which people fly and which you know which people use their ship which i think is fine so my worry is that if people who don't want to go so deep technically because it's kind of it's kind mm. of a little bit sort of like in your head geeky right and i hope that people who don't want that level of of geekiness and control aren't going to be penalized sure. um by having a standard system and if you're going to make it if you're going to put that measure on it to make it sort of so that people who don't want to go that deep can still have a a good game and an equal chance then kind of what's the point in going that deep that's the danger yeah i think i mean you know it comes down to nuance doesn't it and it comes down to what how much of an effect is it going to have by the fact that you've learned all the controls or that you you know the particular nudges how much more of a you know a use is it going to be i remember I mean, when the modding and you know because that, that's the thing as well isn't it is, I, I guess yeah, yeah, sure. what we're talking about here is actually going into the the technicalities of which mods are going to work for your particular ship for your particular use they've confirmed that um there's also going to be presets for the people that don't want to get into you know this kind of level you know the people that just want to be able to hit a button um and not worry too much about the fine tuning aspect but i know what you mean if it's not necessary in order to be an effective pilot then why bother having it but they have said that if you are good at tuning then you will be able to get some kind of advantage how much of an advantage is all about balance there's a level there in in terms of you know if you think about gameplay if we take a gameplay scenario you're traveling to a planet of your choice and uh four ships jump you now the guy who spent all of his time working out all of these little tiny you know sort of upgrades and ways in which they can be the best as possible on their ship is going to see that as a a thing of pride that they're going to try and take this on and they're probably going to wait two or three minutes more before they send the the help plea out to the the viper space patrol to get some assistance whereas somebody who's not quite so interested is going to go yeah i'll send the call first thanks and now i'll see if i can get away 
which you know it's just a gameplay experience isn't it you know it's slightly different gameplay experience um so i guess you can kind of take your score in in anything that you achieve can't you you know because if if your score is there in actually i've managed to you know sort of take on these players who've tried to ambush me or your score is in actually i've managed to achieve these missions or it's in i've achieved these trades to me the more ways in which it encourages people to play the game in different ways, the better it is. And just a couple of interesting points from it. I mean, it's 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 very technical, but it was interesting to see how realistic some of it was, especially when they started talking about cooling management. You know, just with the artificial, like with the artificial gravity, you know, they are trying to keep it realistic. They realise that in the future there are going to be problems of overheating in space because there's no convection or conduction. And so it's great that they've taken that and actually made it into a kind of game mechanic. And the other interesting thing was this idea of like deployable repair modules so it, it's almost i got like this this vision of like you deploy the r2d2 onto the hull of your ship to go in and repair it the interesting thing obviously was that if you had a spare repair drone you could actually use it on um, a friend's ship you could deploy it over to them so uh that was that was interesting when you're t- talking about cooperative combat play that's pretty much a standard though isn't it right it's uh you get it i mean i come from uh from sort of like mmorpgs kind of thing and and you get the mender bots there that you can work towards being able to get one and then pitch it up and all your friends can repair their armor before you go for the next and that's i think especially when you're talking about traveling distances and doing cooperative missions together that's one of the things that will suck the joy out of uh, the scenario more than anything is getting to a certain point and then finding just because you've worn out your equipment, you, you can't continue. Uh, you see, I don't know about that. I agree with this. I agree with this as a proposal, but the idea that the joy is gone when you run out of stuff. I, I, I played, I was a big player of a game called Myth back in the 90s. And the great thing about Myth was that it set you up as you were basically, you were controlling something like 30 or 40 guys who were attempting to fight their way out of an invading army's um, you know, sort of swamping of this this particular fantasy land. And um, you had finite resources, and that was the whole point. You had finite resources. And the moment that you started to run out of resources and you saw all these undead crawling over the hills and coming towards you, that was the best gameplay moment of the whole thing. So I, I kind of, I see your point, and I you know, I completely I agree with the idea that it does need this cooperation and this, you know, to, to extend what they're doing, particularly with regards to, you know, exploring and distance and everything else. I think that's really cool, and I think it's great. But don't think necessarily the worst gameplay is at the moment when you run out. I think sometimes that crisis can be the best time. I didn't play the game that you've spoken about. In my experience, whenever that scenario comes up in a group play environment, it just means one person staying where you are to keep the flag alive or keep the zone alive and then everybody schlepping back for 20 minutes to go and fix their armour at base and then coming all the way back out again which is just like I like that you know I mean obviously you've got the occasional chance for errors as well and you've got you know when things don't function you know that's pretty good I should stress as well, you know, with the, in terms of the repair bots, this shouldn't be something that is easily available. You know, you need to work to get to the point where you have that benefit. So it's not something that you get straight out of the, you know, sort of like, welcome to leave. Here's your ship. Here's your repair bot. Off you go. You know, yeah, it needs to be you, something that you've got to progress towards. No, I, I agree with I agree with that because otherwise, you know, it takes away from the role of the space station, doesn't it? Which I think is, you know, is, is very important. Well, I mean, they've said that, you know, you're still going to need to go and, you know, check in and, and get your service and things like that. I mean, these are more like plasters rather than, uh, you know, 
proper yeah, treatment. You know, you it's just yeah. to keep you going um, until you can get reach dock. So I, I think it's good, and and it's it's also another level in so much that people are going to have to start thinking about you know how much of their space on their ship are they going to need to keep aside to to keep resources. These things are going to take up a few tons. It's like a shield generator. You know, you're giving up space on your ship for utility. Attention. Attention. Second technician, Chris Forrester to the arcade concourse. The venting machine has broken. I repeat. Second technician, Forrester to the arcade concourse. The venting machine has broken. I repeat. Second technician, Forrester to the arcade concourse. The venting machine has broken. I repeat. Second technician, Forrester to the arcade concourse. Attention. Attention. Second technician Chris Forrester to the arcade concourse. The venting machine has broken. I repeat. Second technician Forrester to the arcade concourse. The venting machine has broken. Right, next we move on to something you're going to tell us about, Alan, which is the revised NPC contacts. Ah, revised NPC contacts. Yeah, no, I I found this really interesting because this was kind of my first precursor into or my first adventure into the ddf in sort of in earnest as it were because you know i have a particular idea that i sent to michael a couple of months ago and you know and he talked talked it through with me and said yeah you know we're looking at something similar to that and i i kind of stopped thinking about it and left it and then the topic came up in uh, the forum and um you know i was quite interested to see it and it was actually the npcs themselves were not my particular interest what my interest was was the way in which they communicate with you and this idea of them being always on and I was kind of a bit I don't like that very much and my angle in not liking it which I you know I mentioned on the podcast last week was mostly to do with the fact that the communication system should reflect the distance and should reflect the um, the vastness of the, the sort of the interstellar network and I you know then explained all of those details in the NPC thread because I felt it affected the way in which NPCs contacted players but we also then got into and you know this brought in other players who had an issue with this particular section and we got into the idea of well why on earth are all these npc contacts that you've got hanging on and waiting for your call why are they always there don't they have a life so yeah so people started to to lobby for the idea for a variety of reasons lobby for the idea of having a little bit of delay and a little bit of well they're not there at certain times and i kind of think that that frontier have have looked at that and um you know we're kind of thinking about it in terms of the way in which they're going to model it out so yeah very interesting I get what you're saying, but <laughs> again, I'm thinking back to my time playing uh, MMOs and uh, this stinks a little bit of character camping. Like, am I going to have to sit for freaking hours camping a character that needs to pop at some point and I need this character to progress the quest that I'm on and I can't go any further on that mission until I've spoken to this character and achieved the stage that involves this character and I don't know when this character and it's got you know a three hour respawn rate when somebody's killed it or something no actually I, I, I think you know I take your point on that and I I think that the issue here is, and, and this was the interesting thing about the DDF experience, is that part of the elements of the way in which they bring out the whole design is you have to to think about it. Certainly, I felt I had to think about it 
in a way that I wasn't looking at what my player experience would be, or I was in one sense, but mm. I was also in the other sense. I was looking at what is the complete conceptualization of the design. So yes, I this is what I'm going to see. This is what I'm going to experience. But also, how does the back of this work? And I think I was trying to come at it from a sort of a fiction author's point of view in that if I have a completely rationalized system as to how communication works, particularly with regards to how long it will take for a message to get from here to here based on one system or on another system and so on and so forth, then actually that makes my job as a writer much easier. Because as a writer, I know that if I if I spend thousands and thousands, or if, if the minister of Alioth spends thousands and thousands and thousands of credits on a direct hyperspace link to another planet to talk to somebody, then he's going to get instant communication. Whereas if someone else just tries to send a message through the open network, it's going to take a while to get that. And that mm. creates, you know, that's a nice consistent thing for a writer to be able to use. Now, I recognize my book is not the most important outcome here. The important yeah. outcome is the game. So, of course, they want the gameplay experience to be the best that it can be. But then you don't need to say that everything is going to be there all the time. You just need to factor in, in your design mechanic, that people are not prepared to wait the amount of time that you've suggested but there's no point in saying people are always going to be there and similarly if you you know if you were stuck on one quest and they've said you have a carousel of contacts if you're stuck on one quest well what would stop you from bugging somebody else i guess there's i mean i completely get what you're saying about you know having a degree of realism and you know it helps with the immersion um you know if things don't necessarily play out in too artificial uh, way but the thing about life is life is really boring for a lot of the time <laughs> and we don't really want to go in a game and experience the boring bits of life that's all I'm saying is I yeah, get no, I, that you I'm don't want you. things just to be there and they do have lives but I just See, don't want it to turn into a, a I don't want to spend any more hours of my life camping NPCs basically well, one of the interesting things about this was when I was talking through the amount of delay that, um, you know, that was going to be there, people did give a very similar argument to yours in that, okay, yeah, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spend all this time hanging around waiting for something. But they didn't, nobody, for some time, nobody really asked me how much of a delay I was talking about. And what it, the kind of delay I was talking about was it's actually only a minute, maybe right, a few right. seconds, because it requires things to line up. But at the same time, uh, you know, the, it informs as well. It informs the message model because what we couldn't do is we couldn't have a live stream conversation with the NPC anyway. But the idea would be that that kind of thing can exist within the game universe. So, you know, I can't see Frontier programming NPCs in for or, or you know, members of the, the development team sat there in the office against green screen for you and I to, you know, to effectively call up and go, hello, can you give me my mission? You know, I can't see them doing that. So if you factor that that little bit of delay in, that also gives you a, a little bit of fictionalized reasoning to say, actually, yeah, you know, we can only have typed conversation. Why? Because the signal's a bit, you know, it's bouncing off of all these different ships and all these different hyper relays, blah, blah, blah. blah. You, you see what I mean? You kind of right, yeah, bring yeah, this yeah, around. Yeah. And actually, when I was talking about delay, not really talking about masses of time. Yeah, you know, okay. Just a really tiny bit. I guess maybe because I've spent so many hours, days, years of my life playing these stupid games where you sit and camp and camp and camp. And all you do is yeah. sit there and just sit on, mm. on voice comms with your teammates, sit there drinking beer um, mm. and getting thoroughly bored and, and watching well, YouTube thoroughly drunk, videos. You know, I, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Actually, as a, as a bonus. My liver can't take any more of that. <laughs> Alan, to be fair, I mean, you, I had exactly the same concerns as you, but you seemed much better at giving, you know, giving some clear reasons why there was an issue there. 
I, I think I think really what I was trying to get over is that you know I I, I kind of put this thing together and I, I actually in the end of the day I'm not precious about this um, I'm not precious about anything whenever I, I suggest stuff if they come up with something better if they come up with something good that, that works for other people even if they just ignore it and they you know and they do what whatever else they want to do that's fine but it's been said and I think that's actually my experience of the DDF I went on there to say something and then a few people kind of chimed in with whether they agreed or disagreed. And I kind of had that moment that you do on forums where you could sit there and go, I'm going to argue because that, that's annoyed me. And then I thought, actually, everyone here wants this to be a good game. And it was actually, by the end of it, you know, there were a couple of things I thought I could take this badly or I could take this well. But by the end of it, it was a really, really in-depth and intelligent discussion. I was really happy with it. And Barry read everything. We should say big up to Barry Clark, obviously, for, you know, putting the topic up. Read everything and then closed the topic down as he as he does and took it away and went to have a think about it. Fine. Sounds good to me. They're more aware of the bigger picture than us. So, um, you know, they're always going to have that as a factor. So. Something I've said about other things, you know, whether you agree or you disagree with somebody, um, at the end of the day, if they're the one making the decisions, you have to respect the fact that they're in the firing line to do so, aren't they? So, you know. Is that almost like some kind of veiled threat to him, saying that uh, <laughs> if it works, it's all his fault? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, do you know what? I continue to be impressed by the, the way that they've managed the interaction, because it could have become completely unmanageable very quickly um, mm. and they've managed to keep a control over the sort of input but also make the input feel meaningful um, which which is really good yeah no absolutely I mean I, I actually when the DDF kicked off to start with I was looking at it and using it as an example of information and, and you know sort of ways in which a, a design company engages with its consumer uh, in a lecture and um, I think we had the first topic up and I was just just using it in the background and not you know it wasn't there so anybody could read anything if anyone's worried that I was you know giving sensitive mm. information out early on I certainly wasn't but the point was that we were refreshing to see how many replies there had been and it was ginormous and it was so fast everybody was just absolutely nuts and actually now it's you know it's quiet and and they've they've got this really good structure in terms of the way in which they let the conversation go and I think they've they've handled that very well do you not think that maybe there's a, there's a kind of issue at the moment now that on the DDF on any given topic that gets posted, there doesn't seem to be a large number of voices. It, it just seems to be, you know, obviously the same people who are very, they're obviously very vocal and very uh, opinionated. And so are we just seeing like very extreme views been posted? And uh, I mean, have a lot of people been scared off maybe? I don't know that people have been scared off. You know, I don't, I think a lot of people probably dip in if there's a subject. See, it's quite nice that they give you sort of like the upcoming topics because some people are interested in some topics and some not in others. But I don't think it's a problem that the, the minority, the passionate minority are the ones who are actually sort of giving most of the feedback because ultimately the decision lies with the the level-headed guys who've actually got to make the game at Frontier Development. So, you know, they're, they're hearing what the extremes of the audience think occasionally somebody who feels passionate and doesn't normally speak up will will shout up but ultimately they take it back to their own sort of hive of activity at frontier developments offices discuss it put together a, a, a document and that's it that's what happens so. yeah the, yeah absolutely i think the ddf is is a place to be heard it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the way in which you 
you know, you work stuff. I think Kate and I can probably quite clearly, and I mean, you can as well, John, we, we all know that if we were desperate to, um, to get something said, there are about six or seven different ways you can contact Frontier, but that's the way in which they've elected to engage with people in relation to the design. So it's the appropriate place to do that. And I think that, you know, I think that's great. And I think, you know, I think having the discussion in that way and having them frame the discussion is is useful. If the, you know, if there's people who've got the stamina to manage the entire development process, I mean, obviously we have because we're doing a podcast on it for the entire development process. But if there's other people in the DDF who've got the, um, the time to, you know, to manage the, the real detail of the proposals and comment on them, then fair play to them you know i'm 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 quite happy to to have their views you do see agendas you know i think we've seen two or three agendas and you know i'm aware of one or two people who always tread the same argument and aren't really listening as much as the you know as perhaps the the development company is listening to to them they're not listening as much to the answers that they're getting and they're continually picking up the same soapbox. But you're always going to get that. And I'm going to reiterate Kate's, um, Kate's own words back to her in this, in that this is life, you know, mm-hmm. so <laughs> there are going to be some boring bits, I'm afraid. What's and all, yeah. I think actually the, the, the more worrying agenda people are the ones who want a particular game and they already have a vision of exactly what that game is and they are trying to make this game fit that game. If you're coming in thinking, oh, it's going to be this, or I want it to be this, so I'm going to lobby all the time towards, it's not going to happen because it's, you know, it's one man's vision that he's going to deliver to everybody else or, well, you know, him yeah. through his team will deliver yeah. with, you know, with their input. I think it's best that it is them that are in charge because, I mean, the, although, as, as Kate said, you know, there's some interesting ideas coming out of the DDF at the same time. I mean, it is a bunch of people that don't have game design experience you've got to take it with a pinch of salt at the end of the day and, and you've got to trust the experts we're going to move on to meet the team number seven john kelly although he seems to be frontiers ned kelly <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that's bulletproof to be honest okay well that. fine but um he's obviously a bit wary of some of the photoshopping that goes on on the forums and to be honest i don't blame him did you see how quickly that was that disguise was unmasked um yeah yeah didn't they find his facebook profile quickly or something no they uh, they found that there was a picture of him on the kickstarter oh right <laughs> there was oh, a meet the team there was a meet the team on the kickstarter and there's a whole set of profiles which they found very quickly and it had his face on it so you know bless him was he going for the Stig look? I don't know. <laughs> uh, possibly, or um, I mean, Psychocow very quickly photoshopped him in as Sergeant Major Zero from Terrorhawks, which I thought was inspired. John was one of the first people in the the artwork team. So actually, what for me, one of the biggest impressions that drew me to the Kickstarter and to watch the Kickstarter for as long as I did and to, you know, to sort of be convinced that it was going to be a reimagination of Elite that was going to be interesting was going to be graphically awesome and was going to kind of robustly stand up to to other computer games of the day was some of this artwork and some of the very early artwork and um, John's obviously got a lot of input in relation to to that Um, you can see with some of the example designs that have been uh, put forward you know some of his his touches on uh, the way in which those things have gone through and um, you know he discusses at length some of the, the different ships that he's worked on I think that the way in which they have evolved the basic ships, the first ships, to me, I think I, I was worried about it initially. Other people have said, oh, you know, we, we preferred the old, you know, why not have something with the old line drawings in it? You know, maybe an arcade simulator or something like that. And yeah, you know, I mean, that might be cool. 
but I really didn't want a game that was going to be like that. And I also didn't want a game that was going to be the filled blocks of Frontier or the purple space of Frontier, because as most people know, that was the reason I didn't play Frontier very much. I love the design work on the, the sort of the utilitarian nature and the, the earthy and dirty nature of the, the classic ships, the way they've redesigned them in, in a way to, to make them look functional and workmanlike. Because that's quite difficult when those ships have a very regular structure um, to give them that you know, utilitarian feel, and I think they've succeeded. And certainly, a tribute to John that um, that he's taken on part of that, and also to Josh, I would guess as well. So now we're going to move on to the writers section. What's been happening on the writers forum? Did you do not a lot actually since since last week? And I listened to last week's show, and um, you know, heard the, the the stuff that you guys chatted about. There's been a little bit of a spattering of um, to and fro about um, weapons, um, like handheld weapons and weapons damage, and and how that might interplay. And I think ge- generally the writers are all in agreement; they want it to be fairly low-fi. I don't know how much I'm allowed to give away, but people are sort of thinking handhelds are going to be fairly low low-fi. So is it going to be quite kind of like Firefly kind of? I guess so. I mean, we're we're kind of all talking and, you know, and this this stems from a conversation that happened actually very early on in the process in that early on in the process, we were talking about particular pieces of technology and whether you're using that technology as ambience or whether you're using that technology as plot and what's required for your plot and so on and so forth. And now it's come back because people have nearly finished books. And so they've got examples in, you know, all the different stories that they're writing. So they're going, OK, well, this works like this and this works like that. And of course, a lot of it, we can't, you know, particularly if it's ship weapons, we're not going to know until we get into alpha or, or beta testing. And when it's hand weapons, really, I guess we're looking for Michael. And he did provide some guidance early on uh, with some of it. But a lot of it was, oh, yeah, we're coming to that later. So we're kind of looking at Michael to provide a little guidance. So really, I guess, Kate, the conversation's kind of there, isn't it? You know, we're Mm. all sort of suggesting examples and then you're waiting for something that that can kind of say, actually, categorically, this is, you know, this is what will and what won't be. I've I've stuck, I mean, I, I said in the early discussions about using the term kinetic weapons and I've stuck to that. Most of my stuff is all projectile based. There is one weapon that's not projectile based. Um, that's a hand weapon. And it has very specific parameters. And, you know, and I'll wait to see when I get my draft in whether Frontier like it or they don't like it. And then we'll, you know, we'll cross the bridge when we need to. Other stuff that's gone on, myths. We were, we had a bit of a discussion that kind of petered out. It'd be nice to get back into that discussion because we can kind of support each other there. It's kind of, yeah, that's kind of a thread which is asking for people to start submitting ideas that could be collective myths and sort of like you know fiction canons going threading throughout everybody's books perhaps and there's no sort of you know you have to include these in your book but I think it's nice that some of the the more established writers who perhaps got further with their books are, are giving this opportunity for other people to perhaps you know sort of hook into a part of their story to to help give it some substance but I find it difficult again you know at a stage where I'm too thirds three quarters of the way through my plan my plan was actually established back in March and was approved back in March so it's kind again it's it's a nice idea but it's kind of difficult because myths are quite big things well I don't know I mean you know I I was at sort of similar stage then and and there are there were certain themes that you know have kind of come in and through and I know that my book's set in 3265. That's that's absolutely clearly stated that this is when these events occurred. If somebody writes a book that's 
after that, they can reference the stuff that happened in 3265 very easily. And actually, one of the short story writers, uh, Alan Farr, is is in discussions with me about that specifically um, because he's you know he's he's using a character idea connected to you know to some of the things that I've got. So that's that's fine, and we're going to you know sort of have a look through and connect those things together. But similarly, if there's other things, if there's you know if there's a ship that features in yours at the end that no one knows what happened to it, and it mm. turns up in another book, and then it appears in the game, you know those are it, it kind of concretizes things and i think that that opportunity is really great for you know for the game itself particularly and i mean you you, you discussed at lavecon the idea of um, of getting your your book out early so um you know in that sense uh i detect a, a small snigger in that sense um <laughs> the idea is is there that you know people will have perhaps and i you know caveat this very carefully have already experienced things and then can go into the game and go and find those things i think you know that's, yeah, that's awesome. no, yeah, I I agree. I agree. I just um I guess I'm think talking from personal perspective in that and my story is it's about the personalities. It's a character story rather than a sort of, you know, a big mm. grand environment and interconnected uh factions. I'm not looking at the politics, I'm sure. not looking at the it's it's very much about the story about one woman and her shit life. <laughs> But you've already, you've already, you know, in the discussion that we've had tonight, you've already discussed one thing that is a, a mythological element, which is the relationship between two groups of society within your text. Right. And if, yeah. if another planet or a, you know, or a couple of traders in another book went, yeah, I went to this really weird world. You know, they worship the people on the planet. Right. Yeah. Okay. Do you yeah. see, straight yeah, away yeah, yeah. there is a, yeah. oh, I wonder what that's all about, and suddenly that's connected directly. So maybe to, I should know, put that into that that thread then maybe that's well you know it's up to you if it's if it's something you want to engage with i think i think that discussion's got a lot of mileage it's petered down a little bit now because a few people have effectively set up shop and gone yeah here's the ones i'm interested in here's the ones i'm interested in and to be honest you know i, I kind of instigated some of it but then haven't really put my own shop up so yeah it's something i think all the writers will revisit probably when they're you know they're feeling like their drafts. Yeah, when first uh, draft is written, but yeah. I don't need to be adding anything else to it. No, sure, sure. You know, I mean, all I did, I did a tiny tweet to accommodate something that Drew had written, which I thought was very cool. So, you know, other stuff in the, the writers' forum, John. We we know that we now have two writers with finished drafts. Um, congratulations, Drew. Congratulations, John Harper. But John Harper's been there a while, and John Harper's gone and got himself signed up by Drew's publisher, Fantastic Books. Excellent stuff. Okay, see, we're, we're still kind of teetering on writing, writer's section, and I just want to bring in one of the questions that we had. But we've, we've got this one from uh, Mr. D. Wagger. Um, <laughs> Don't know who that any, is. <laughs> any thoughts on the no-show authors? Are those who pledged to them justified in being annoyed, annoyed and what should they do? Now, I know that we've probably discussed this on the podcast before, but it usually hits the cutting room floor. But it seems as we now have a question. Do you want to... Uh, actually give your opinion on this i i don't i mean do people have a right to be annoyed it depends what it was they signed up for you know the of the no shows were the pledge tiers that people signed up for for example my um nosy parkers you know paid a hundred pounds each to be part of a, a group which will get sort of feedback and 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 information throughout so they would have the right. Those who paid a fiver for a copy of the e-book when it comes out, kind of, they need to save their rage until that e-book doesn't get delivered, right? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, at the end of the day, the contract is part of what's there. And the contract, I would assume, based on any knowledge I have of contracts that are signed with Frontier, would say something along the lines of a right to publish a piece of fiction set in the Frontier universe. doesn't give a date, really. So, but most of the Kickstarters gave a date of delivery, didn't they? So, yeah. Now that's that's the bit that's you know that's that's different. And of course, and this this kind of chimes in with what we've said about the you know how crowdsourcing and crowdfunding is changing the way in which projects work. You know, and the way in which people can obtain funding because you're not you know you're not going to one gatekeeper. You're going to you know to hundreds, but at the same time you're beholden to them. It is a bit of like a bit like the Wild West in that regard. In that you've backed somebody with a, an element of trust and when you feel that trust is let down a little bit i guess that's a relative feeling and that's that's quite difficult mm. at the same time looking at those projects unless they are significantly advanced and we don't know about it then i don't think they're going to make much if i was you know from my speaking mm. from my experience if i was going to start writing a book now to be ready for march i wouldn't make it no, and they've got to go through the approval process for the the plot. And yeah. um, interestingly enough, I think probably what should happen and what what would be the right thing for Frontier to do, especially as you know they've gone on and got additional funding. So the couple of four and a half grands that they got, because I can't imagine the, these missing authors. I haven't checked their their Kickstarters, but they probably only just scraped the four and a half grand, right? Mm. So mm. maybe the right thing for Frontier to do would be to step forwards and say. Well, do you know what? If they don't deliver, we'll give you your money back because that four and a half grand, you know, yeah. it's, they're not desperate for the pennies, given that they went and got funding elsewhere as well, post fact. I mean, that, that so, is making one assumption that is making the assumption that the money did go to purchasing the writing contract, which we don't know. Because of course, only Frontier knows that. And oh right! So maybe they that. didn't pay for. The, but then Frontier should have said something. Yeah, if that you would was have the case. Thought, Frontier should have gone. Nah, uh, uh, hang on a minute. Mm. Yeah. No, you would have thought so. But the same, you know, at the same time, I do think that you know, with with Kickstarter and with other crowdsourcing sites, there is going to come a point. And I don't think it's happened yet. I think there've been some cases of you know where things have gone down. If you look at uh, there was a, a thing done by Rick Priestley about a year ago that that started off really well, and then then the funding started to get withdrawn very quickly, and then they pulled the starter. And there've been other ones that sort of failed. But I, I think there is going to be a moment where a substantive something is going to get its money and crash and burn. My understanding is that Kickstarter anyway, especially, have built in to their fees a fund that is growing for seeking legal recourse. You may well find when it's a big enough and high enough profile thing that actually mm. Kickstarter will step forwards and will say um, uh, Frontier doesn't, doesn't deliver Kickstarter have the funds and some kind of insurance policy in place because their whole business model implodes mm. if they if people are allowed to get away with that. Well, they've definitely got T's and C's in place, which basically absolve them of any responsibility. They've had that from the start. But, but I bet a high-profile case they would chase it legally. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, they're going to have a PR machine, but it's a kind of slap in the face that if something like that did happen and they ended up paying out, it'd be a slap in the face for all the other people that backed the smaller projects that failed. Yeah, sure. And I mean, in this instance, you know, when we we're, we're sort of drill it down a little bit towards what the starters that we're talking about, in this instance, I think, to be honest, what's kind of set people a little bit is the lack of communication. And certainly looking around the authors that are progressing, you can see that the, the key thing has been 
the level of communication those authors have with their backers. And I mean, even this week, I put something up this week in my update saying I'm now going to stop updating the Kickstarter, but I'll still notify you when I'm doing updates. It's just the updates will now feature on my website. And somebody immediately came back with, oh, so you're just going to disappear. How am I going to contact you? And he checked my website, but not seen where the email address was on my website. And, you know, and obviously I was able to then come back and say, it's okay. Don't worry. It's right here. You know, don't worry about it. And I'll always make sure I'm still in touch with you here and everything else. But you can see that that relationship is quite fragile and, you know, and quite rightly so in that people who in some cases and quite a lot of cases don't know you have pledged a lot of money to to support you. And it's a humbling thing. At the same time, it's quite a responsible thing. So it's quite, quite careful that you have to be with that relationship because there's just not the communication level. Maybe there are reasons for that. Certainly with updating, I've, I've sat there and kind of gone, oh, but if I just wait a day or two, I'll have even more to tell them. Oh, but if I just wait, a, and then eventually gone, no, actually, you've got some time now. You need to just talk about where you are. Um, yeah. And I've been, very, I've been very honest. You know, I've been very honest with the things that aren't going well and the things that are. But yeah, I don't know about you. I mean, I don't know how you found that it's relationship. It's time. It is the issue. You know, we, we are all so busy and... I kind of made a rod for my own back early on in terms of my communication in that I wanted to do it all in character and I wanted to, you know, have my updates be through Uh the the website. In order to do an update, I need to have some kind of level of production value for it. And Mm. so I can't just type a quick three paragraphs, this is where I'm at. Um, And what I've been doing is I've been doing that through my Nosy Parker's Google group. But of course, I got that kind of bit me in the bum a couple of weeks ago because people suddenly started coming through the Kickstarter and through the Frontier forums going, what's happened to Kate? Because yeah. they weren't involved in the in the Nosy Parker forum. So they weren't aware of the fact that I was still chugging away with it. But I hadn't mm. gone to the production value sort of process of posting an update. So, yeah, I, no, I totally I totally get it. And it is hard work still it's still emotionally hard work and especially if you do get behind you kind of feel like oh gosh you know it's like not wanting to tell your mum that you you know left your gym shoes in the in the swimming pool or something you know people when they step up to the plate to fund something through a crowdfunding whether indiegogo or kickstarter or whatever you know you are becoming you are opting to be an investor and investors don't always make a good return on their investment no true yeah so people have to appreciate that that's you know you're not buying a guaranteed ticket to the finale what you are doing is you are investing Mm -hmm. and hoping that your investment is a good investment and is going to bear fruit tom what do you think you know would you invest yeah i i I can i can get on that boat okay good right well oh tom you're for that you are Seriously, get over yourself. It's an interesting idea. I don't really know. There's there's a lot of things about me I don't really know. I think I think both. 
Unrecognized instruction. Would you like to reorder raid or raid? I, I would say, yeah, because there are many, many different ways you can approach things. Syntax error. Please restate confirmation. Would you like to reorder raid or raid? Yeah. Time expired. Please hold and wait for assistance. Attention. Attention. Second technician, Chris Forrester to the staff cafe on level 14. The venting machine has broken. I repeat. Second technician, Forrester to the staff cafe on level 14. The venting machine has broken. So next we go to what makes a good elite soundtrack. Now this has been inserted by you into the show notes, Alan. Oh, I'm sorry. I think we had to mention, and I probably should have mentioned at the start with uh, stuff I've been doing since the broadcast. We got a shout out in the Frontier Elite newsletter this time around about the SoundCloud, where I basically I'd got in touch with the other forum members who produce music and said, let's let's put everything together on a group of Frontier inspired music. And so Ashley then put it in the newsletter and we got huge, huge response. Loads and loads of people came on and and started uh, listening to the music, gave us some lovely comments. And then lots of other people came in and put up other compositions that were inspired. And I got, you know, one or two really, really touching messages congratulating me on my work and saying how much it was, you know, it was really good for them and had got them back into writing too and, and helping them with their music. So, you know, really, really positive. So my thought was, what things are we looking for? We know that they're going to do this orchestral sort of sweep. We don't know anything about who is is going to write it at the moment. But what do we want to see? What sort of things do we want to see in that soundtrack? You can't see a soundtrack. All right. Just saying. Okay. What sort of things do you want to listen to here? <laughs> What kind of noise? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm musically dyslexic, so I couldn't, I, I really don't know. I You play me anything and five minutes later I'll have forgotten it. You can play it me again and I'll be like, oh, that's nice. So, Kate, have you listened to uh, Alan's work then? I have, and it's like hearing it for the first time every time I hear it. It's brilliant. <laughs> right. So it's not she, a catchy tune, then? She, None of them are, they? No, you're, the thing you're, is, trying, you're trying to drag her into the hole, and she keeps on climbing out. The <laughs> thing is, none of them are for me. I lived with a, a lady called um, Val, my flatmate. We shared a house for five years, and um, she had a, a music studio in her bedroom, and Every Wednesday night, she would uh, work on a tune with a friend of hers in the bedroom. And it took them about three years. And then when they finished it, she played it to me. And I said, oh, that's great. And I went out and I came back later that evening and everyone was in the living room and they were all nodding along and listening to a tune that was on. And I said, oh, that's nice. What's that? She was like, that's the thing we've been (laughs) writing every Wednesday for the last three years. And I played you like two hours ago. For me, one of the big drivers in terms of my writing was that Chris was was doing Escape Velocity and that kind of kicked me forwards because I'd said I'd put stuff in because it was something I know I can do, you know, in the Kickstarter. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. But Chris having the scripts and having the stuff for his episodes really did sort of push me on. And, you know, it was great. It was great to rediscover writing music, which was lovely. In terms of stuff I want to see, the Blue Danube. Of course. Well, you know, you said you can't remember anything in terms of music. That one I can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. I, I, Is it just classical stuff that you can remember? Kate? Just that one, just that one. Because well, it's think, iconic, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I was writing a scene the other day in the book, and I had this guy who's who basically, it's his first time he's been in space and his first view of anything in space, and he's viewing a, a camera feed from the space station 
that's displayed as if it's a window and he's watching these ships going into dock and how they're maneuvering in the silence and all I could think of was the Blue Danube and you know because that's it is something that we grew up with in terms of the way in which we kind of see space in in that regard and you know I, I think there is something there there is some sort of real connection that the game has with that tune I know Frontier obviously put more classical music into the next two sequels but even though I love Magorski and I love you know some of the other pieces that they've got on there, the Blue Danube is is elite. Well, you know the thing is, I love the classical pieces just as much as you, and and definitely playing Frontier, the music was a big part of it. You know, especially the Frontier theme tune, which I know you're not necessarily a massive fan <laughs> of, Alan. I'll out you on the podcast, but. Um, I wouldn't mind it if they mixed it up a bit, to be honest. You know, if they want to move away from the classical and, and, and go a bit more contemporary or whatever, or maybe go a bit electronica or something, just try something different. I'm actually, as long as it's good stuff, I don't care. You know, as I, I think I said on a few podcasts ago, you know, they should experiment a bit more, you know, and, and we've all come up with our, of well, you said... Um, tubular bells <laughs> i didn't say tubular bells i said sorry you said michael yeah, now, you've not heard and you now i'm going to pick you here you and foz got off on one on this and, and we had joking. we had some we had some messages in of people going hey don't knock it and blah 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 which was interesting the thing is is mike oldfield did an album called songs of the distant earth and it was based on an arthur c clark novel if you'd heard songs of the distant earth then you know what i was talking about Tubular Bells is not something that um, that I think is is science fictiony. It's you know it's got it's it's sort of reminiscent of The Exorcist, obviously because it was used in the soundtrack. Yeah, Songs of the Distant Earth is is quite something in terms of, of listening. Well, it, I will I will tell you now. I have actually listened to that album. So okay, uh, ah, so there okay. You go. I'm shot down in flames. Well yeah, done. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying. I, and and to be yeah, I, I obviously know that uh, there's more than Tubular Bells. And it's not necessarily a bad album, but um, I, I, I was just joking when I was mocking Mike Oldfield. <laughs> I don't know. I can't speak for Fox. It was it was quite funny, and that you you know it was Mike Oldfield and John Michael Jarrow. It was as if you know you had had something against uh, two of the icons of my youth. I don't know what it was. I think it was just to wind you up, mate. <laughs> at the end of the day. But to go back to your point on um, on the Frontier theme tune, now I'm I'm not a fan of the original. Um, the reason I'm not a fan is that it is of its time, I think, and, and I think it didn't date particularly well. I think Chris's redo, it grew on me. I didn't like it to start with, but it, it did grow on me. And um, certainly the classical arrangement redo that's been done recently by um, by Jamie Boo uh, that's put up on the SoundCloud is is pretty cool. Um, it's got some John Williams in it. It's got a little bit of, uh, of Hans Zimmer in it and, and a little bit of James Horner in it, which I think is is awesome. What do I want to see in the soundtrack? And, and I, I think, you know, when, when Frontier have said that they're going to do an orchestral, that's great. That actually gives some of the guys, you know, the indie guys who are, are sort of writing stuff that have put stuff up in the SoundCloud. Because Frontier have very clearly said what they're doing, it means that we can kind of go, well, we're doing something else. And that means, and it's still futuristic, and that means it's got a place. So, you know, it gives you an alternative. And I think that's quite quite nice. It's quite nice for you know for people feeling that they can contribute to to a game. I would, as I said, something different. Either Van Gelis or Van Halen, <laughs> <laughs> or both mixed together. Yeah, that yeah. Would be cool. I, I, Van Halen, Van Gelis mashup with with a bit of Darth Maul and a Cobra. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so as I said, I'm I'm all for trying something new. I'm not too 
you know, uh, attached to the old stuff. I mean, if it can be, as you said, like what Jamie Boo did, if it can be realised mm. in a new way, then I'm all for that. You know, it doesn't have to be classical. Or, or what about um, what about the elite musical theme tune? Would you would you keep that? Um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, you'd have you that know. in there, would you? Nah, actually, I, I don't know. <laughs> you, Probably not. Have you heard it? Probably not. Yeah, I, I heard part Aiden of it Bell, that turned Aiden off. Aiden Bell's elite musical theme tune, yeah, I think that yeah. probably won't go in the final soundtrack. So, uh, yeah, in terms of music, as I said, I, I just want it fresh. Okay. And, and it's going to have to be freshened up a bit. Mm-hmm. And whether they can stick with the classical genre, I don't know. What about you, Tom? You into fresh? Yeah, I, 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 can, I can get on that boat. Okay. <laughs> and Kate, <laughs> do you have any feelings at all? I know you're tone deaf or whatever. Yeah, but, I pretty uh, much am. I, as long as it's got a good beat and I can tap my feet along to it. I, I, I would actually have been known to um, accidentally have a tune on repeat and sit there for five hours listening to it while I'm working before I even realise it's the same tune playing over and over again. So literally anything, as long as it's a repetitive rhythm, will do me. That's a metronome would do me. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Someone someone obviously in, in your car, someone would sit there with, with a pair of sticks and, and beat against the door, wouldn't they, rather than necessarily uh, yeah. <laughs> bother putting the radio on. <laughs> exactly. That would work. Okay. Oh, dear. Okay, so discussing some of the questions that have come to us and Facebook, first of all. We'll answer some of the the shorter ones first. Oh, apparently Stephen Robinson, the designer of iWar Defiance and iWar 2, listened to the iWar Retro Lave episode and quite enjoyed it. Oh, well, that's that's good. He said that they did the wrong missions. (laughs) So thank you to Colin Ford for that one. And, okay, so here's something. Steph Wyeth, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with. Has the level of difficulty imposed by the starting ship been considered yet so um, obviously we're thinking about the Cobra, the Eagle now if you remember rightly the backers get to start in a Cobra but I'm thinking that people who aren't backers are going to start in something more like a Sidewinder have you got any thoughts on this guys? I don't think it'll be a problem well if you don't like starting in a Sidewinder then you should have backed the bloody game when you had the chance (laughs) shouldn't you? Yeah, I, I think I don't think it'd be a problem. Certainly, in terms of the way in which we've seen playability footage, you've looked at ships that are quicker, ships that are slower. Some have got extra cargo capacity, and to be fair, you wouldn't have twenty-five starting ships, and you wouldn't shuttle between them if they weren't comparable. Um, they won't be the same because otherwise, there wouldn't be any point in having twenty-five different ships. But they will have comparable strengths and weaknesses, and I think that's fine. I think it would have been more interesting if the Anaconda had been on the list. What, as a starting yeah, ship? Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's in terms of comparing it to previous games. You know, in the previous games, the Cobra was a large ship. Mm-hmm. You know, it was 100 tons, mm-hmm. which is quite large. So yeah, I guess if they're only thinking about it in terms of previous games, then obviously, yeah, they think that they've got a, like a, quite a, an advantage. Mm-hmm. But probably the way the other ships in this game are going to be... Um, Staggered is probably not as big a. In fact, some people might be disappointed. Yeah. Okay, we've got one question you missed that was a little bit further down when it was first announced that Foz was going to be on holiday. It was from John Harper. Is the guest host derived from bovine ancestry? Yeah. Um, Tom? To a degree, yes and no. Okay, good. Has he just called me? Has he just indirectly called me a cow? No, no, I think he was definitely uh, talking about Tom. I think that's, that's <laughs> right. fine. Don't worry, I think you can 
and slip that one away. Or you can turn that into something that gets the two of you in some kind of argument, then that's fine. I'll, uh, I'll happily referee that and let you know who's winning. I think at the moment you probably are. Because he's not around to defend himself. Yeah, exactly. He's in New Zealand, he's asleep. Good. And to be fair to the Kiwis, they got funny sense of humour. So uh, you know. <laughs> I, d- I don't know what it meant. Did you? No, I, I wasn't quite sure. No, I, I, I thought as Kate did. You know, was he calling her a cow? <laughs> yeah. I looked. I looked at it. I mean, I replied under the Lave Radio account, and I basically looked at it and went, "Why would you ask that <laughs> to anybody? Yeah. You know, why would you? It's very strange." So, I mean, if I was Kate, I'd have just come out and said, "Yes, I've got six nipples." <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other story, though. Yeah. Ooh. Oh dear. Never mind. So on Facebook, there's another question. Yep. Have you seen that one from Giles? It's wrong if I read it out. Any truth in the rumour that John Stabler is hairier than a Wookiee? John? No, it's not, because I wax. Okay, so... Tom, can you verify this? To a degree, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> what, he's my, he's my waxer. Tom, have you, have you ever waxed John? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, so the last question is the serious mm-hmm. one. So this one is from... Exade, what are your thoughts on the piracy proposal in light of recent developer forum posts? I've read up on this, so I can probably summarise it to get your opinion. So, obviously there's a concern that piracy needs to be uh, a career that people can choose, and it obviously needs to be competitive. If you remember at the beginning of the Kickstarter, David Braben was on a, on a video, and he quite clearly said that he wanted people to be able to choose different paths, but they all had to give people equal opportunity. He didn't want there to be one career which delivers more money so that everyone ends up being a trader or everyone ends up being you know, a rubbish dumper in slough or a bounty hunter or whatever. So they all need to be able to deliver some kind of, uh, of a living. Now, Frontier, they need to be able to work out who is a successful bounty hunter, who's a successful trader, who's a successful pirate. Uh, and to do this... Obviously, there's different events and different things happen in game, different signals they can kind of tune into and kind of then understand how far on the elite ranking you are. Because if you remember now, it's not just a case of killing people to become elite. It's a case of you can do other things and elite is now a club for successful people. That's how it's kind of been described. So for a bounty hunter, it's quite easy to measure how successful you are because you scan someone and you find out they've got a bounty and then you go and kill them. And then if you're successful, you get good reputation. And that's that's a similar story for most of the careers. The problem is with piracy because Frontier seem to want to kind of draw a line between good, honourable pirates and psychopaths. So in other words, a psychopath is someone who's just going to come and kill you. And, you know, they'll just pick up whatever's left. And they're not necessarily interested in your cargo. They just want to kill you. Now, they have said that they're not against that kind of gameplay in principle, which, you know, is uh, good news for some people, I guess. But the problem is with how can you tell whether uh, a pirate is a good pirate? So the developers are suggesting that you can't shoot them. You've got to, first of all, tell them to stand and deliver, <laughs> and then you're allowed to shoot. Okay, thoughts? I remember speaking to David uh, right back at the um, in the early days, back in um, the end of December, when I interviewed him to get some articles in places. And one of the things we talked about was this element of the multiplayer aspect and how we both 
hated the bullying aspect that some people, you know, they're a better shooter than you and decide that they're going to grief you then, you know, they can become a pirate and it can can become really miserable for somebody who isn't perhaps as skilled, has maybe drifted a bit far out of their comfort zone in terms of it's a bit more dangerous area and they've they've gone a bit further afield. And, and you don't want to turn the game into something miserable for somebody who finds himself in that position. And my understanding from that conversation with David was the plan was to have a scenario where if they fire on you before you fired on them, then they're the aggressor and they're in the negative. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, and no, that it does. was my understanding of how that would actually be worked out. Raising a Jolly Roger and saying stand and deliver. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, fair enough. Give somebody the opportunity. Say, look, I'm I've got bigger guns than you. I want your stuff. Do you want me to damage you or do you just want to hand it over? But that's not gonna the game mechanic isn't gonna know that that exchange has happened. I think that being a bad pirate must come from the physicality of you attacking a weaker target and not relenting. You know, if they don't defend themselves and once you've blasted open their, their cargo bay, if you then carry on attacking them for no reason, then then that gives you extra bad pirate points and, and increases your bounty significantly. I mean, it's interesting. I think I think everyone's sort of view of what, a bad experience in this is to a degree is relative and then there is a bottom line that we all kind of go no you know what no that's not acceptable when i played some of my fantastic costume events when i've gone and wandered around and played particularly nasty characters i always knew that within that gaming environment because it's you know it's a consensual gaming environment and it's not bound by the you know, the, the redress of programming um, i always knew that if I was a character who was going to go and kill someone else, then it was my, as a player, it was my responsibility to ensure that they got entertained by that process. Because at the end of the day, it required their consent for their character to die. So if I was going to play a psychopath, I had to be the most entertaining and make it the most amazing experience that they got killed by me. I, you know, some sort of movie show murder, effectively. That obviously can't be rationalised into a game system that has a limited set of parameters. It can't be rationalised completely into a game system that has a limited set of parameters. But there are certain things that I, I look at and go, you know what, I'm perfectly happy with that. And I mean, I'm well aware that I'm in a minority of, of any of the, the people that are engaged with um, this game. And I like to lose. I think that genuinely some of the best gameplay is when you are desperate. And when you are, you know, struggling with something, and I, I, I generally like that gameplay. It creates memorable moments. But at the same time, Frontier have, have modelled a system whereby pirates are pushed to the, the extreme by the fact that the policing of certain core worlds should push people who have a, a continual tendency to prey on other players. You know, won't find certain systems welcome to them. I mean, we've not yet seen the measured response of the law and the measured response of the authorities. We don't know how effective that response will be because there's been no calibration of it and i'm assuming that will come through in alpha and beta so for people to hypothesize about how this is going to be stopped before we've seen any of the methods by which people are going to attempt to stop it you know i'm not sure about that the hoisting the flag in the proposal it makes me giggle to think about it but the more you think about it the more actually it lends itself towards 
quite an interesting conversation with somebody. It's quite funny that you both kind of, on the discussion of piracy, that you both ended up talking about griefing, because I actually thought they were very distinct topics. Piracy is meant to be a legitimate career <laughs> in the game. But, yeah, in, yeah, no, I, I, I get it, but it's, it's an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, sure, sure. And this is maybe the problem that people end up talking past each other. But, you know, if we accept that piracy is a career, okay, and let's just put aside bullying mm. behavior, something that is quite obviously bullying, and, and let's just focus on the career of piracy. Do you think that it's a good mechanic that pirates should have to hoist the flag and give away the advantage of surprise? Remember, there's meant to be stealth well, mechanics. Yeah, there's, the there's two sides of that. One is that it does you know, as I say, the more I think about it, the first, as soon as you mentioned it, my first thought about it was, that's laughable. And then the second time I thought about it, I thought, actually, if you think about those moments when high women stood in front of the carriage, it is quite a a ritualized scene, isn't it? And it's quite an interesting piece of byplay. If, if you've seen the film Plunkett McLean at any point, which I think is is a fantastic film, there are some elements in there that are incredibly entertaining. And if you're attempting to create swashbuckling in space, I don't know, maybe it could be a method to do that. Uh, it's I, also I, not a monochrome kind of solution. You know, I mean, the, the, you can have this scenario where if you choose piracy as a career, there are two different or many different ways to do it. But you could choose to try and be a pirate in the densely populated with rich pickings. But obviously, there's an awful lot of uh, of, of naval forces around as well. And the way for you to have a, a longevity of career in that kind of environment is by not creating a, a ruckus and not causing too much damage. So in that scenario, you would say, you know, I'm going to rob you, give me your stuff and, and, and I won't damage you and I won't well, cause it, you any any grief. Or if you choose to go the stealth route and blast your way through people's holes and, and, and take the violent route, pretty soon your reputation is going to, to, to escalate to the point where the bounty on your head has a swarm of vipers around you every time you uncloak. Well, it, it lends itself to the, the idea of the lovable rogue. You know, doesn't it? The problem is, is I'm, I'm sort of weighing it up in my head and thinking, how's this going to be exploited? Where's the ways in which people are going to, to take this the wrong way? But, you know, having somebody effectively encounter you in space and watch this decal appear on the side of their ship and have them then type into some sort of message to you, Avast there! Lean to! Open your doors! But as you said, I don't know if it is this black and white thing because I don't think that um, necessarily that because you want to leverage your, you know, the element of surprise that you necessarily want to, you know, blow them to bits. You just want the first shot because they're talking about how you can target specific systems on a yeah. ship. And I think it would be great to have the advantage that you can disable them because then when you do say to them, right, your money or your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. They don't have an well, escape only, route, and so they're going to take it yeah, more seriously. Yeah, your only problem there, though, is, of course, is that if you've got some form of complete disabling system, then, of course, that's only one step away from rendering them powerless and destroying them, you know, isn't it? So, 
Well, no, but what I mean is, you know, there's going to be a chance. Yeah, you know, it's going to take okay. skill, okay. you know, and, and if it if you do skill it and you do I, manage to disable them, then... I, I'd be interested to see somebody go into the game and, and attempt to play Commander Pirate. I think that would be entertaining. You talk to everybody with the pirate accent. International Speak Like a Pirate Day is coming up as well. It's just yeah. in a couple of weeks' time. So Yeah, I think that would be awesome. I think that it would be entertaining to see somebody attempt to pull you over every time like that. And, of course, the first thing you do is com Viper, you know, pirate. And then immediately they go, I'll get you next time. <laughs> and they can run for it. Oh, you're, pra- you're practicing your Western. I am, I am, obviously. My pirate's going to Cornwall. I think it's incredibly previous getting Annika's in a twist about this because, you know, as Alan said, until we actually see the mechanics of how mm. the punishments are metered out and how the, the systems are policed, then we've no real way of knowing what the cost of being a good or a p- bad pirate will be. So Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think we've got to see how that's calibrated. And I mean, you know, they can calibrate that pretty heavy if they choose to. We'll have to see how it works. The other thing as well is I would urge anybody to reread the group's proposal because there's been a lot of talk about, you know, what if this, what if that, and, and you know, people worried mm. about interactions with other players. Mm. And it is all actually there in the proposal. Mm. I mean, it's not 100% finalised, don't get me wrong, but the the group's proposal does offer players a great way to kind of manage yeah. their game so they don't need to necessarily worry or if they don't care and they just want to interact with everybody that's mm-hmm. all there and, and i think it's a very good system and i'm looking forward to obviously alpha beta testing it because mm. i think it's the usp mm. you said the usp is going to be this massive dynamic universe i think it's going to be if they pull it off successfully this kind of uh, multiplayer game that can cater to lots of different play yeah. styles okay well you know i guess we're going to see aren't we Okay, so that leaves me to remind people that they can contact the show by emailing info at laveradio.com. You can find us on Twitter at laveradio. Uh, you can find us on Facebook by searching for Lave Radio. And if you want to call us on Skype and leave us a voice message, you can do so. Our username is lave.radio. Oh, and also if you want to take part in Retro Lave, then uh, get in contact with us on Skype, send us a message, and we will get back to you. So that just leaves me to thank Alan Stroud. Thank you very much. Here every week. <laughs> and a big thank you to Kate Russell for stepping in at the last minute and saving well, us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. It was the pleasure was all ours. <laughs> Fozza is going to be back next week, so that normal service is restored and we can get the vending machines. Yeah. If I find out he's been anywhere near Slough in the meantime, I'm going to be placing my rocket launcher somewhere that the sun doesn't shine. And I think we ought to thank Tom as well, but he appears to have left. Um, I guess he's going to try and get a drink, Tom. Tom? Tom? Attention. Attention. Second technician, Chris Forrester to the arcade concourse. The venting machine has broken. I repeat. Second technician, Forrester to the arcade concourse. The venting machine has broken. I repeat. Second technician, Forrester to the arcade concourse. I repeat, second technician forest into the arcade concourse. The machine has broken. I repeat, second technician. Now I'm gonna murder every single person I see.